We're going to be in Matthew 11. We're looking at kingdom questions. If you're new to us, we've been moving verse by verse through the gospel of Matthew. And the big theme has been the gospel of the kingdom. We're in chapter 11. And I have built the sermon around four questions, all right? So a question from John the Baptist, a question from Jesus, a question that we all might have about how could we be greater than John the Baptist if we're part of the kingdom, and then a question about Elijah. Jesus talks about Elijah coming, uh, being sent before the great and terrible day of the Lord according to the book of Malachi. Was that fulfilled in John the Baptist? Is there another Elijah coming? We're going to ask some questions about what's called eschatology, if you've heard that before. That term has to do with the things concerning the last days. And no doubt, if you've been around the kingdom of God or the church or listened to Bible teaching, you've heard about the end times and maybe you're getting videos and wondering, you know, are we near the end and what would the signs be and uh, all of that. So we're going to look at some of that today and we're going to dig into some of those questions the text is Matthew 11. If you're able to stand, why don't you stand with us for the reading of the Word of God. We're tackling the first 15 verses with the title, Kingdom Questions. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples or apostles, Matthew 11:1, 1, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. As these men were going away, verse 7, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women... There is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah, who was to come. He who has ears to hear... Let him hear. You can have a seat. Father, thank you for all those who have gathered in your name to worship you in spirit and in truth and now to hear the word of God. And your word is alive and it is powerful. And often in scripture, you said, Jesus, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You address the seven churches in Revelation with that uh, constant refrain. He who has ears to hear, let him hear with the spirit says to the churches. Here we are, the church in this age, Lord, and we need ears to hear and a heart to obey. And this is not an easy section, Lord, especially near the end. There's some complicated theology, eschatology here, and hasn't been easy sledding, and there's some disagreement on what all of this means. 
So would you give us an understanding from your Holy Spirit? Would you help us to understand the things of God and uh, to apply them as best we can in light of your scriptures and in light of your glory? So I pray that we'd be a little bit more like Jesus because we've been together today. And I ask that in Jesus' name, if you agree, would you say, amen. Kingdom questions. As I sat before the text this week, that's kind of what came up. I, I was asking a lot of questions, and uh, at the end of this particular sermon, I will tell you, you're going to need to put your thinking cap on a little bit more. We're going to get a little bit more technical this morning. I don't think it's going to be too much for any of you, but just so you're prepared. The first part of the sermon is going to have some definite application and encouragement, I hope, for you. As we get nearer to the end, we're going to start to dig into some theology and eschatology, end time kind of stuff. Who uh, is this Elijah who is to come? Is that completely filled in, fulfilled in John the Baptist? Prophecies from the Old Testament. Three in particular uh, spoken of John. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40, if you're taking notes, has a prophecy about John the Baptist. 700 years before John was born. And then Malachi, or affectionately known in the Italian as Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, has two prophecies about John one in Malachi 3 and another in Malachi 4. Now, those are not probably uh, unfamiliar to you, but we'll dig into those and we're gonna be turning a little bit in our Bibles. I'm gonna try to keep it to somewhat of a minimum, but we're gonna turn a few times back and forth so we can take scripture with scripture. Let's begin at verse one with kingdom questions. It came about, Matthew 11, 1, when Jesus had finished giving instructions, we've studied that the last several weeks to his 12 disciples. They're going out on that short, short-term missions trip to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus gave them instructions. He gave them warning. He departed from there after those instructions to teach and preach in their cities. Now, if you read a little commentary, study Bible, their cities is a little bit of a question. Whose cities is he talking about? Is it the cities of Israel? Is it the cities of the apostles? Did he not send them into their home cities because we all know that when we go home and we tell our family about our faith, it's not always easy for them to receive what we have to say. A prophet is, you know, without honor in his hometown, if you will. So that can be a difficult mission field. So maybe Jesus went to their cities to preach. Imagine if you're one of the apostles, you go to your hometown, you're one of the 12, you're Peter, James, and John, and you start preaching to people that knew you when you were growing up. Oh, you're a an apostle, huh? I knew you as a little boy. You know, really? So sometimes that can be a little difficult. So John, Jesus may have gone to those cities. We don't know for sure. Some believe that Jesus came behind the preaching of the apostles and kind of did follow up in those cities. We don't know for sure. We don't have enough to go on. But Jesus was teaching and preaching. He was a teacher and a preacher. We've learned that as we've gone through the gospel. Now the camera pans to John the Baptist. Now when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, that's the Messiah, he sent word by his disciples. Now John the Baptist still had disciples at this point and he was in prison in Herod's palace in the dungeon. Josephus tells us that he was in the Machaerus prison and being in prison at this time was an ugly, ugly thing. If you've seen uh, movies depicting John the Baptist in prison, it's possible that he was chained to a wall. It's possible that there were rats and all kinds of ugly stuff. You know, no, no uh, sanitation like we have in today's prisons and television and workout areas and that kind of stuff, none of that. And if you survived 
You only survived in prison because your family visited you or your friends brought you food. There were no three squares and a cot to sleep on. It was brutal. And John the Baptist had been languishing in prison. And we all know, if we've read our Bibles, why that happened. John confronted King Herod over an unlawful marriage to his brother's wife. Her name was Herodias. And he spoke out against the king about marriage. He said, it is not lawful for you to be married to your brother's wife. Now, I know today marriage is a big topic, right? And who defines marriage and what marriage is? Well, John did not hesitate to call out the king over his illegal marriage. What made it illegal was that it was illegal according to Scripture. He should not have been married to his brother's wife. But he was out of order. John called him out. And the wife, Herodias, was angry with John. It's, the Bible tells us she had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. And Herod put John in prison. And the Bible says that Herod liked, liked to, use, to listen to John. And when John would preach to him, he was perplexed by John. As one commentator put it, that John the Baptist was everything that Herod was not. John was a righteous man. He did not bend to the cultural winds. He stood on truth. And Herod was a puppet. He blew with the winds. He only answered to his pleasure and his what he wanted right here, right now. And John called him out and he got put in prison for it. And that's where John is at the moment according to the text. And John still has some disciples that are faithful to him. And so he has some questions. He's been hearing about the works of Jesus. What did he hear? We don't know for sure. But in all likelihood, we could say this. We, we know that John probably heard that Jesus was spending time with tax gatherers at IRS parties. <laughs> no way, really. <laughs> he was with sinners. He was with prostitutes. He was touching lepers. He was crossing over barriers, you know, uh, in, with the Samaritan woman and so forth. And and he was hearing of the works of Christ. And I'm sure they were marvelous, but I'm sure he also had some questions like, where's the kingdom of God? Why hasn't he established the kingdom? Why am I in prison? Why hasn't the fire of judgment fallen? Because I preached in Matthew 3 that the axe is already at the root and the Messiah is coming and he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. Maybe John was waiting for an angelic prison break, you know, where the door would fly open and he would get out. I mean, after all, he was human. And he was not only a prophet, he was prophesied in the Old Testament at least three times. He was Jesus' cousin. He had... Uh, seeing the Holy Spirit light on Jesus, and he had announced, Behold, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In John 3.30, he had even said, He must increase, I must decrease. And I'm not sure John knew exactly everything that that would mean to his life because he was in prison. And you know, from what I understand of Scripture, he probably languished in prison for at least a year and an ugly place, a dungeon, and so he was hearing about Jesus' works, and he sent word by his uh, apostles, or his disciples, I should say, with this question. This is the first of four questions. If you're taking notes, question number one. John said through his disciples to Jesus, are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Now that's a hard question, isn't it? And it's potentially even a hurtful question. But it's not an unrealistic question given John's situation. He's in prison. He's got to wonder what's going on. 
And he's been hearing different things about Messiah. And you know how stories go when the word finally got back to John. Who knows what he heard and was it all factual? It's hard to say. But whatever he heard, it caused a question in his heart. And, you know, when we reflect on those great scenes in the Bible about John preaching a baptism of repentance, watching the Holy Spirit light on Jesus, saying those famous words in John 1.29, there's the Lamb of God. You might ask, well, how could he backpedal at this moment? Because John, like us, was human. And so he said, are you the Messiah? Essentially through his disciples and you're going to see in Jesus' response, Jesus is not hurt by the question. He doesn't rebuke John through his disciples. He simply will answer it, and he will affirm John in a marvelous way. But I want to pause here just for a second to tell you that there's a couple of reasons, I think, why John asked the question. Number one, and I think it's clear in the text, it was his expectations. Are you the ex expected one? And sometimes our expectations get us in trouble. And the, the question I think that we would all ask, you know, just looking at the Bible and studying it is, were John's expectations biblical expectations and are mine? I mean, frankly, usually when I'm looking at my life and kind of weighing things, we can make ourselves the center of the universe. It's pretty easy to do that. And we can begin to ask questions like, Lord, Why? Why am I still in a prison cell? For some of you, you may have become a Christian in the last several years, and maybe you still feel like you're a prisoner to some old habits or fear or whatever it may be. And you, and you may say, oh, I thought the moment I became a Christian, you know, I, I saw a preacher on TV say I'd be healthy, wealthy, and, you know, never have problems again. Well, if you heard that, that's wrong. That's a lie. Believers have challenges God is the same, and you are a Christian, whether you have a good week or a bad week. But John was in prison. And being in prison, he basically said, this doesn't really fit with my expectations. Remember, the apostles asked Jesus in Acts 1, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Maybe John thought a swift judgment's coming. Jesus is going to sit on the throne of David. I'm going to be sit, seated at his right hand at the marriage supper of the Lamb. He probably thought it was all happening soon because that's the way we tend to think. We think only in our immediate lifetime, our immediate circle, our immediate nation in which we live. How could he forecast the gospel being preached for 2,000 years beyond his own life and still counting? He probably couldn't even, even fathom that because he was a human. And sometimes when our expectations are not met, we get ourselves in trouble. And I'll just say this, whatever your expectations of God may be, you have to factor this in. God does allow suffering. He doesn't always open the prison door wide the immediate moment we pray and fix it. It just doesn't happen that way. And he has his reasons for it. And why this great Last of the prophets, this cousin of Jesus who announced the Messiah would ultimately be beheaded by a wicked king. You know, we, we know the end of the story here, right? Herodias does get her way. She manipulates through the dance of her daughter and Herod does ask for the head of John the Baptist. What a sad ending. Who could have predicted that the messenger of the Messiah would be beheaded by a wicked king? But that's the end of John's story, at least this side of heaven. 
So there's John, and you can totally understand. Unmet expectations. Here's just a side note. I love the honesty of Scripture. The Scripture does not say, oh, John was rock-like in prison, and he just stood firm, and he never had a moment of doubt. The Bible tells the honest story. Even the messenger of the Messiah asked if Jesus was the Messiah. And you know, when we're going through our own struggles, let's be honest, sometimes that's what we ask. If we're going to be truthful, whether we say it out loud or not, sometimes we might have questions about, is Jesus the one? Is he really the way, the truth, and the life? Can he be trusted? Peter, you know, when all those people walked away in John chapter 6, Jesus said to the apostles, do you also want to go away? And Peter, I think, answered the question for all of us. Where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. That's John 6, 68. So we can have our moments. John had his moment. He had expectations that were not met. Second application is his situation. His situation is obvious. He's not where he wants to be. He was faithful to God. He went out in the desert. He preached the baptism of repentance. He stood his ground against a wicked king. Why am I in my situation? And maybe you feel the same way right now. Uh, Our situations are not always what we want them to be, whether for us or someone we love. I mean, let's face it. This world is so built that we can always be worrying about something. There's always something going wrong for somebody on the planet. Just watch the news for 10 minutes and you'll be reminded of it every time so you can drive yourself a little bit more crazy if that's what you want to do. And you know that the news stories are on a loop, right? Y'all know that? Watch about 10 minutes and you're done. That will help your health out. Are you the expected one? Should we look for someone else? I mean, we can understand. I think if we were there, we might be asking the questions as well. But let me just say that there is no one else. If you decide to walk away from Jesus, there's nowhere else to go. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He's on his way to a cross to pay for our sin debt. We can trust him because of what he's done for us. And so Jesus responds in verse four. He says, go, Uh, Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John. Give word to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, verse five. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. R.T. France says that Jesus' response to John gives John a theological framework where he could be steadied in his faith. I'm paraphrasing what France said, but basically what Jesus now does is quotes the book of Isaiah to firm up John's faith or doubt. I want you to hold your place in Matthew, turn over to Luke just for a moment, Luke 7. There's a parallel account and there's a little cool nugget in here that I want you to see about the timing of the works of Jesus, Luke 7, 21, 22. Here's what Luke says. He's sharing the same account. Are you the expected one, Luke 7, 20, or do we look for someone else? Notice what Luke says. At that very time, Luke 7, 21, Jesus cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many who were blind. And Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. Something to note, 
Jesus did miracles right in front of the, uh, the disciples of John, I think to give them a visual affirmation of the facts. I don't know what these disciples of John had seen so far, whether everything they heard was accurate about the Messiah, but now they got to see with their own eyes, him open blind eyes, open deaf ears, etc. That's pretty cool, isn't it? In other words, they would go back with their faith so strengthened that they could go to their teacher and say, yes, I've seen it with my own eyes. Jesus Christ is the Messiah and he's fulfilling the prophecies in the book of Isaiah. Amen? That's the graciousness of God. That's his compassion to touch people right on the spot, but also to affirm John's faith and to say, I don't want you just to believe what you've heard. I want you to know that your disciples have now seen what I'm doing. And I'm sure they went back with a little extra skip in their step and said, John, hold on. He is Messiah. We watched it with our own eyes. It's a beautiful thing to see the compassion of our God. In the book of Isaiah, there's prophecy written about what the Messiah would do. Why don't you turn with me to Isaiah 35? If you don't want to turn there, we're going to try to throw this up on the screen for you. I, I mentioned to you grounding the Messiah, what he would do, what he would say, what he would be in the Old Testament. Let's just look at one beautiful scripture. This is predicting the work of Messiah in Isaiah 35. We're looking at verses uh, one through six. Here's what it says. The wilderness and the desert will be glad and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. 35.2. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted, can't help but think of John, and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage. Fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance. Hold on, John, we might say. Judgment is coming, but first these beautiful works. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be open. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. The tongue of the dumb will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. Skipping down to verse 10. And the ransom of the Lord will return. And come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Praise God. Back to Matthew chapter 11. Much more I could say. There's a prophecy in Malachi 4 about healing being in the wings of the Messiah, and they will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. That's Malachi 4.2. In Isaiah 61.1, uh, the Lord has anointed me, the Messiah, speaking prophetically because he, he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Everything that Jesus was doing was anchored in the Old Testament prophecy. And that's what Jesus says. You go back and you tell John that everything I am doing is what the Bible said about me. Look at verse 6, Matthew 11. And blessed, you could call this a little beatitude. Blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Blessed is he who doesn't stumble over the way I'm doing things. You know, we all have perhaps expectations. If someone in a Jewish context was thinking, if I ever live to see the Messiah, I'm sure it'll look like this. 
They could have isolated certain passages or had in their own mind what it would look like. And Jesus said, blessed are you if you don't stumble over the way I'm doing the Father's will, the work of Messiah. Blessed are you if you don't stumble over this. Happy is he who is not caused to stumble by the way I'm doing my work. John had not fallen, but certainly you could say John was on the verge of stumbling. And Jesus knew it. And so he strengthened him. And I, I, I believe that oftentimes when we're on the verge, maybe we feel like we're going to fall. Maybe we feel like we're, you know, we're beginning to limp. And next thing we know, we may spiritually fall. I believe the Lord can give you a word in due season to encourage you. I believe he often does that through scripture. Uh, devotional time through a message we hear from a pastor through a radio program. There are ways that the Lord, he knows where you're at. And he can bring a word. He can bring one Bible verse texted by a friend, whatever it may be. Uh, a devotion that you stumble upon, you get it. Blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. And as they, these were going away, now that's John's disciples, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes about John. And now Jesus has his own question. This is the second question of the four we've uh, kind of built this message around. As they were going away, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes about John certainly within earshot of the disciples walking away. What did you go out to the wilderness to look at? The word look at is where we get the modern English word theater. Did you go to see a reed shaken by the wind? When you went out to hear John preach and he was saying, repent, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And he was doing that baptism of repentance and everybody was flocking. Did you think that he was like a reed blown around by the wind? John did not blow with every wind of doctrine. John was firm in his conviction, though he was experiencing some doubt at the moment. And I'll just say this. Sometimes you can watch yourself be as firm as firm can be. You, you could feel like I, I'm, I'm this close to heaven. I feel like my feet are planted on the rock. And 12 hours later, you could be a different person. Amen? You could have doubts flood your mind. You can feel like, how could I be so feeble and weak? But that's just the human condition. But John was no reed shaken by the wind. Why would Jesus say this? Well, that is a problem, isn't it? It seems like a lot of uh, preachers these days blow with the wind. Blow with the cultural wind. Blow with every wind of doctrine. And that shouldn't be happening. But it does. Old mainline denominations have pretty much bailed on every essential doctrine of the historic Christian faith. They blow with the wind. That wasn't John. But why did Jesus say that? Because John was blown a little bit. And I think it was a way to firm him up. In other words, they were going to go back and say, this is what he said, this is what he did, and this is what he said about you. And John had to feel a little taller, a little bit more encouraged that Jesus knew who he was. And hopefully it stabilized his faith. He, John was no reed bl uh, blowing with the wind. He was no Mr. Pliable, like Pilgrim's Progress lays out. He didn't play to the crowds, though he could have. Another question, Jesus has a couple of what's and a why. What did you go out to see? Verse 8, a man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. Now, ironically, John was in the king's palace, but he was in the dungeon. <laughs> And John did not wear soft clothing like those in the palace halls. You know what he wore? A camel's hair suit, baby. 
No matter if it was 105, he was wearing the camel's hair and it wasn't comfortable. And his diet was locust lucky charms. Do you remember? They're magically delicious. And all right, locust and wild honey cereal, whatever it was. This dude was an outdoorsman. It wasn't about comfort. It wasn't about king's palaces. It wasn't about a smooth tongue telling you what you want to hear in the slickest suit on the planet. None of that. That wasn't John. John was fiery and firm. And Jesus, once again, probably affirming John. He's going to hear this. I know where you are. But, and I know what you've done. I know what you've sacrificed for me. Hold on. And now, two what's and a why. But why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes. I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. Do you know that John the Baptist has a very unique place in uh, salvation history? Because who else had prophecy written about him as well as the Messiah? John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was the pivot point between the old and the new. He was the one who announced the coming of the one who is the new covenant. And that was John. And Jesus says, not only is he a prophet, he's more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, quoting from Malachi 3.1, probably combined with Exodus 23.20. Behold, verse 10. I send my messenger, that's John, before your face, who will prepare your way, that is the way of God or Messiah, before you. John had the uh, baptism of preparation, the baptism of repentance. He was the messenger. He was the voice in the wilderness crying out, make ready the way of the Lord. That was John. Jesus, his accolades for John are amazing prophecy about John. And he says, truly, I say to you, 11, among those born of women, born of women just means those born in the natural way. There has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. There's no one greater than him. You want to start naming names? Moses, David, Jeremiah, Isaiah, name your name. No one greater than this man. Now that is some amazing accolades. And the beauty of that is that was going to get back to John. You're a great man, John. You've done your job. You've done well. And I think all of this, not only is it packed with truth, but it is intended to steady John in his prison situation. But then this little caveat that raises a question. There's been no one uh, arisen that has arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist yet, end of 11, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. And all God's people said, what? You mean that Christian friend of mine who can never get their act together is greater than John the Baptist? You gotta be kidding me. How could any modern believer be greater than a man who no one was greater than, like David and Moses and others and Joshua? How does that work? Well, greater in this sense. John did not get to experience the new covenant. He died before it was initiated. In Luke twenty two twenty, 20, Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood as he passed that cup of the Seder meal, the cup of redemption. And then Jesus would die the next day to institute the new covenant. John never experienced the new covenant. 
And the evidence is that John didn't experience being born again of the Holy Spirit and sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now here's a key verse just to write down. John 7, 39. Jesus spoke of the Spirit, John 7, 39. Whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. In John 20, 22, Jesus breathes on the apostles and says, receive the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit doesn't come in the new covenant sense until the day of Pentecost. John died before that. John was the bridge, the pivot point, but he, had not, he did not experience becoming a new creation in Christ. And some of you are saying, well, hold on a minute. John was filled with the Holy Spirit while he was yet in his mama's womb. Yes, it's true. And John certainly preached with the power of the Holy Spirit, but he did not experience the new covenant, new birth like we do on this side of the cross. Everybody with me? He was the pivot. He was the bridge, if you will. And something for us just to kind of assimilate into our souls. It is a privilege to live this side of the cross. It is a privilege to be in the new covenant. It is a privilege to be sealed with the Holy Spirit. It is a privilege to know that we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to our account. Amen? Amen. Now, John announced that. And, of course, he's going to be uh, obviously a critical part of the kingdom but he did not experience it in his lifetime. That's what Jesus means. So if you consider yourself least in the kingdom of God, you have a greater privilege, are you ready, than John the Baptist. That, to me, is mind-blowing. And I'm not sure that I always live my life with that kind of gratitude in light of that reality. But that is the reality. And so Jesus goes on. And he says, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. Now my question three was, how could we be greater than John the Baptist? I think we've answered that question. We'll have one more question, but first Jesus says something about John. From the days of John the Baptist, 12, until now, the kingdom of heaven, that's our big theme in Matthew, suffers violence and violent men take it by force. Now there's Two ways to see this verse. One, the kingdom of heaven suffering violence is an obvious uh, word, violence, just like it sounds. When the wise men come into Jerusalem, where is he who was born king of the Jews? What did Herod do? He killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem two years and younger. And he caused weeping in that area of the world, right? Violence. Jesus had just warned the apostles that don't fear him who can kill your body. There's going to be hatred among family members and etc. All that tough stuff that we saw in chapter 10. We know that John the Baptist was going to die a violent death under the hands of Herod. And Jesus was headed to the brutality of crucifixion. How much more violent can it get than those you know, scenes that I've just laid out for you? So taking it at face value, the kingdom of God is suffering violence. It's being attacked, if you will, and men are trying to take it. Some believe the, the end here is take it by force. But there's a parallel verse in Luke 16, 16. You don't have to turn there. Here's how Luke records it. The law and the prophets, Luke 16, 16, were proclaimed until John. Since then, the gospel of the kingdom is preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Now, the second way to see this verse is simply this. 
that there's an urgency and you almost have to have a violent attitude in pressing into the kingdom of God through the narrow gate, if you will. Make sure you get in. Make sure you treat it as the pearl of great price that it is. And I think that for me, I would land that there's truth in both interpretations. One, yes, the kingdom suffers violence. Basic meaning. Two, it's time to enter into it, to do whatever you can do to make sure that you get in, that you trust in Jesus. Look at Matthew eleven thirteen. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Now, just stop there for a second. You can see that John is the last in the line of all these prophets. You can go back to Moses. You can go back to Joshua. You can think of Elijah and Elisha. Chronicle your Bible, David and others. John is the last of those Old Testament prophets. He announced the Messiah, and the Messiah was there. God spoke in various ways through the prophets, etc. In many portions, in many ways, Hebrews 1.3, in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. There was no need for any more prophet to announce the coming of the Messiah because the Messiah came in Jesus and John was the last to announce it. Everybody with me? This is a salvation map. Think, think a little bit of salvation history here. All these prophets come until John. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He provides the bridge to the Messiah. Now, some people might say, well, there, are there apostles and prophets in the modern church? Not in the sense of Old Testament prophets, I don't think. Is there prophecy in the modern church? In one sense, yes, but in another sense, not like the Old Testament prophets. John was the last, if you will, because Messiah was realized. And then Jesus says these words. This is the final question of the four. We'll spend a little time on this one. And if you care to accept it, he, John himself, is Elijah, who was to come. And all God's people said, huh? Now, how could John be Elijah? Well, Jesus is not saying that John is the reincarnation of Elijah. John, it was announced in Luke 1, 16, 17, came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He would have a similar ministry, if you will. He would be an Elijah-like figure. Well, why didn't the Old Testament then use the name John? Well, here's, here's a parallel application. Sometimes in the Old Testament, the Messiah is called David, like in the book of Ezekiel. Well, why would the Messiah be called David in the Old Testament? Because David cast a shadow of the coming Messiah. Everybody with me? So he was called David in quotes. That's why John the Baptist could be called Elijah in quotes. Malachi didn't know his name. So Malachi gave a prophecy. But Jesus says, and just read the verse again, if you care to receive this, and the natural man can't receive the things of the spirit, but the spiritual man can, John himself is Elijah. Now, what did the Bible say about this coming of Elijah? Well, it's one book back, convenient for navigating your Bible. It's the book of Malachi. All you got to do is turn one book back. It's the last Old Testament book, and there are two prophecies about the coming of this one called Elijah, or the messenger. Let me just set a little bit of time frame for you. And actually, why don't you turn to Malachi 1 so you can see the audience just for a second. Malachi is usually um, determined the last of the Old Testament books by date, somewhere around 400 uh, B.C., 
400 years before the Messiah comes is the date of Malachi. Now, some of you have heard about an intertestamental period. Big word. All it means is that there were 400 years of prophetic silence from Malachi to Matthew. Everybody with me? That's the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testaments. Then John arrives with the message of the Messiah. Malachi is that last book before the silence occurs. Now notice what happens. The oracle, Malachi 1.1, it's a very short book. I would encourage you to study this on your own. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel. Israel is the recipient through Malachi. So prophets spoke the word of the Lord. And here you have the one who brought it was Malachi. The audience is Israel. Now for the sake of time, skip over to Malachi 3.1. You can see the first prophecy of two in Malachi about John. Behold, Malachi 3.1. I'm going to send my messenger and he will seek, he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he, Messiah, is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, that's a tribe in Israel, the priestly tribe, and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Now let's just pause there for a second. When the messenger of the Lord would come, according to prophecy number one in Malachi, The Lord would suddenly appear in his temple. Now, John the Baptist is the first fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy. There's no doubt Jesus just told us. The Lord suddenly coming to his temple could be a couple things. One, it could be when Jesus cleansed the temple twice in his earthly ministry. Remember, at the beginning of his ministry, he turns over the tables, he cracks the whip. He says, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. He did it at the end of his ministry. And we say, maybe that's him suddenly coming to the temple. But it doesn't seem to fit with the next verse. Malachi 3, 2 says, who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. Certainly, Whatever this is, it can't just be those cleansings of the temple. Then the question is, what is it? Now, here's where I want you to put on your thinking cap. There are two main camps in the, uh, call them studies of eschatology or the last things. Camp number one would say, John the Baptist was the messenger. Jesus coming to the temple happened in 70 A.D., when Jerusalem was destroyed by the armies of Rome, and you can read all about this in history, not one stone was left upon another. And that generation that rejected the message of John, killed John and Jesus, would see the destruction of their edifice, if you will, their temple, because he said, your temple is left to you desolate, and, and camp one would say they're a non-dispensational camp. I'll explain that in a second. It was fulfilled. John warned. The nation didn't turn. And the temple was destroyed. And that's when the Messiah suddenly appeared to the temple through the armies of Rome. And that was the great and terrible day of the Lord. And it happened in history. And it happened to Israel. Done deal. End of story. Now they would say, 
I'm not denying that Jesus is coming a second time, but I'm just saying that a lot of what you dispensationalists think is future happened in the past. Now you say, what is a dispensationalist, Pastor Michael? Well, dispensational theology, one part of it is that God will work again in the ethnic nation of Israel. This is a certain camp in orthodox circles, and it's not everybody. And most of you have heard dispensational teaching as it relates to the last days. Here's what I mean. You've heard uh, kind of a nice little neat package about a pre-tribulation rapture. Jesus could come at any moment. The return of Israel is a major uh, significant barometer to that, dot, dot, dot. I think most of you know that. That's the camp that I am in and have taught for probably three decades. But I just want to say to you that you need to be aware that there's a non-dispensational camp and they even say the rebirth of Israel is irrelevant to last day's uh, unfoldings. They don't see any significance to it. They do not believe that God is going to work again in ethnic Israel. Now, I'm just putting that out there so you're aware that there's a different point of view. But I will say to you that even people in this camp look at the return of Israel in 1948, uh, becoming a nation, the recapturing of Jerusalem in 67, and they take note like, hmm, it's making them think about their interpretation. Remember, I told you, you may leave today with more questions than answers. So I'm just going to put this before you. The second prophecy is the very last verses of the Old Testament. Look what it says. Once again about John in the language of Elijah. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that... I will not come and smite the land, probably the land here would be Israel, with a curse. Now, the prophecy, the last verses of the Old Testament basically say, John, under the quotes of Elijah, is coming, and what he's going to do is preach a baptism of repentance. Turn, turn back to Matthew, because we'll reference this one more time, and we're just about done. I've got just about five more minutes for you, so hold on, okay? All right, so... Basically now, you've got this prophecy, and here comes John, and what is he preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Behold, prepare ye the way of the Lord. He's trying to get everybody ready. Baptism of repentance, baptism of repentance, baptizing people, thousands of people, left and right, Pharisees coming. Are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. Why did he say he's not Elijah if he's Elijah? Because he's not the literal Elijah, but he's Elijah in quotes. Everybody needs some aspirin at this point? All right. So... So John says, no, I'm not Elijah, but, but Jesus says he is Elijah. Which is it? Well, it's the, the, he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah to fulfill the prophecy. All right, everybody take a breath. So John is preaching repentance. Did the nation respond to John? Did the hearts of the fathers return to their children? In some cases, probably yes. But as a whole, did John's ministry and the ministry of the Messiah bring the nation back to national repentance? No. And God honored his word and smote the land with a curse. And in 70 AD, 
Rome came and destroyed it, and it's not been rebuilt for 2,000 years. So God is true to his word. Now, Jesus says, if you care to accept it, Matthew eleven fourteen, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Now, I want you to hold that thought. Turn to one more passage, Matthew 17, just a little bit ahead of where you are. Now, the Mount of Transfiguration is the scene. Jesus has been transfigured. Moses and Elijah have appeared on the mount. It's, he calls it a vision here. And they're coming down the mountain. Here's the discussion. So they're coming down, that's Matthew 17, 9. And his disciples, 17, 10, asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now the scribes were repeating the Malachi prophecy. And let me just say, pause just for a second. Most of you have heard about a pre-tribulation rapture because that's been the dominant teaching in any moment return of Christ. But here's something I would just have you think about. Have you heard a Bible teacher say to you, that you should be looking for Elijah before the day of the Lord can happen. Well, most of the pre-trib rapture camp would say that the day of the Lord can happen at any moment. But if the day of the Lord is the whole last seven years, according to the chronology, wouldn't we be looking for Elijah before the day of the Lord could happen? I just want to leave that as a question. And some of you probably have either known this or notice this, I do not hold a pre-tribulation rapture view. That's not the camp that I'm in. I hope they're right, because I'd be ready to go up at any moment, right? I, I hope they're right, but I don't believe that that's the biblical view. But so many of you have heard it packaged over and over again. You can't think any other way. It's very hard. I should say it's hard for you to think any other way, but just keep your mind and ears open just for a second. So, Here's what happens now here. And here's where I think we could have a dual fulfillment. They said, well, the scribes quoting Malachi say Elijah must come first. One other thing. Do you know at uh, Seder celebrations, Jewish people have something called Elijah's cup and they set a place setting for Elijah. You've all seen that. Do you know that in non-Messianic circles, they do that based upon Malachi 4 because they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah so they think if Elijah shows up, he'll be announcing the first coming of the Messiah. If you've been to a Messianic Seder, they're thinking a second Elijah is coming to announce the second coming of the Messiah. All right? So anyway, now, Jesus says, Elijah 11, he answers, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. Now that sounds like he's coming a second time or it could be rendered, Elijah comes and will restore all things. And so the dispensational camp has said this. Elijah is going to appear a second time before the ultimate day of the Lord, and he'll be one of the two witnesses in Revelation 11. And this language seems to support that. And so this is where the debate lies. Is there a future appearing of Elijah? Will he be the one who announces the coming of the Messiah? If he does, we should probably be looking for Elijah. And so this is what you have to kind of wrestle with. And here's what he says. But I say to you, now this helps with view number one. I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also 
The Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about who? John the Baptist. So let me just say this. I've given you four questions. The first one from John, the second one from Jesus, the third one about how could we be greater than John the Baptist. The fourth one is about Elijah. And how do we understand this in our own view of the end times? Let me just say this. From a practical standpoint, it doesn't really matter. I mean, whatever, whoever's right, it's all going to work out and it may not even matter to our generation. Amen? So, so I wouldn't get nervous about it and do a deep dive on an Elijah study for the next six months. You know, put on camel's hair and say, I got to know, I got to know who it is. You know, some believe that an Elijah-like figure will appear before the second coming. You, you can... I'll, I'll let you wrestle with it. And I think you should wrestle with it. And I think you should be a Berean and check what other people teach by your Bible. Amen? So you know what you believe and why you believe it. But let me just say that if you don't settle it completely in your own mind, I don't think it has great relevance to your life today. But I will say this. As you watch our world and you get the videos that come over your phone about this happening and that happening just be careful that you have a biblical lens. Because if you don't have a biblical lens, you'll jump on every doomsday prophecy that comes down the pike. And I'll just say this, almost every generation has thought that they were the last one. It's going to happen in my lifetime. Why? Because I'm living now. And I, I think it should be me. And it should be us. And, but, but that's not always the best way to think. You got to think biblically. You got to step back and say, okay, what is the Bible actually teaching here? And if you've got good reason to believe that there's markers that could indicate the second coming is near, like the return of Israel to the land, like a possible double fulfillment of Elijah coming again in one of the two witnesses, which is the camp that I've been in, I would say, good, but make sure you are firmly there because you're convinced by scripture and not someone else's opinion driven into your mind for the last 20 years or whatever it's been. Everybody with me? Okay, that's why we need the last verse. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I'm praying for you. Because this week I came away and I'm like, oh Lord, I got, I got questions. I, I don't know if I have this completely settled, but that's okay because it'll drive us back to the scriptures. Oh Father, as we sit here in this comfy building uh, with what's going on outside, there's so many things going on outside and it's more than just the weather, but we pray for your mercy upon areas that may be hit by this, this storm, whatever category it is at this moment. Uh, just pray for your mercy on areas that might be exposed on the coast and pray for protection of your people and all people, Lord, that you be merciful. This state of California certainly deserves a storm or two. Um, we have thumbed our nose at, at heaven, but there's a remnant here, Lord, and I'm grateful for that remnant. And they're, they're here today. They've come to hear your word and to stand. And they even braved some, braved some difficult weather to be here. And for all those who are watching live stream, would you bless our family who's uh, tuning in via, um, you know, a great, opportunity we have in our day, which is through technology. For every soul, Lord, who's heard this, this message, my prayer, 
Anything that's brought confusion or a lack of clarity that's from me, let them forget it. But anything that's been from you that's profitable in their understanding of scripture, I pray that they would think about it and study it out. Thank you for the encouragement we, we hear you give regarding John's situation. And some of us are in tough spots and we needed to hear that you love us even if the prison doors don't always swing open wide the way we'd expect. And our situation may not be always what we expect, Lord. Would you help us to, to stand strong, whatever may come our way? And would you help us to know that even when we doubt, we're in pretty good company And it doesn't mean that you don't love us because we have a moment of doubt because our circumstances are tough. So I pray that you'd strengthen faith in the room and keep your people strong in the Lord and in the strength of your might. I pray in Christ's name.